Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. My guest is Margaret Price, a great songwriter and a great singer, recording artist who you probably know if you listen to this podcast, but if you don't, you need to know her work. She's made three excellent albums, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, All-American Made, and That's How Rumors Get Started, which is the newest uh, album. And uh, I was bike riding a lot this summer and the day that record came out, it was the thing that I biked to. And um, mostly I was biking to Tom Petty and Sturgill sometimes. And uh, <laughs> that album just fit right, uh, right in there, even though I know that wasn't the one you made for Petty, but still that album, uh, it, it just kicks ass. Uh, great, yes. great work, Margo. Uh, we were definitely uh, pulling more from his songwriting style on that record than the second one, even though, you know, I, I threw his name in that second one and it came out on his birthday shortly after he passed. But uh, I appreciate the nod because I am a huge Heartbreakers fan and uh, we were definitely borrowing from, <laughs> from a few of his tricks. Well, it's a weird thing, the effect that a certain kind of music has. And I've, you, it seems to me you have such a reverence and love and also a need for the kind of salvation through rock and roll that Bruce and Patty and Neil Young either talked about or, or lived. And I, I do too. And, and uh, where, where do you think, how did that first happen for, for you? Because like I, I've found Neil Young in particular and Tom are the things I've used the most to get me through the, this time. And, and, uh, and I do see a real connection in what you do and what they do. I, yeah, I love um, I love getting compared to to guys like that because most of the time it's like, oh, you're you know you're you're like Dolly or whatever. Which I mean, who wouldn't want to be compared to Dolly? Yeah. Your voice sounds like a little bit like Alison Krauss and a little like Dolly or Loretta. But that, who cares? That's not that's just. I'll that's, take that too. But that doesn't. That's yeah, different I mean, than who you are as an artist. Yeah. Right. I mean, I um, I think you know one of my first influences growing up and, and what I was hearing through the radio, it was Tom Petty. And, um, you know, then later in life, I found Neil and I thought, I, I just love the way that he was always throwing everybody off. Just when you think that you've got him figured out, you know, he's like following a different muse and, you know, he could, he could write very like songwriter based kind of country stuff. And then he could just absolutely melt your face um, on the other end of the spectrum, you know? And I, I really, I, I know a lot of people just really wanted me to stay in the same lane and just keep making country music, keep making, you know, the, the same albums over and over, but I always knew that if I did get my foot in the door, I would, you know, continue to just follow, uh, you know, follow my heart and, and not be limited to like one genre or, you know, or one style because it's just, it's stifling to, to do that. Yes. I, that, I, I completely understand that. And I understand it from uh, personally, from the way people tried to, pigeonhole Dave and me from the beginning of our career, you know, and, and uh, wanting us to write, make a certain kind of movie. And then you try to go, well, we could do, you know, and I, I understand how hard it is to sort of break out of that, but I'm interested too in, um, 
like what you said about Neil is true for sure about the shapeshifter thing, but then I guess what I'm curious about, and it comes through in your music too, because even when you say like, oh, it's a different style of record, it's still completely you're through this prism of the artist that you are. And the thing about the thing I've been thinking about a lot, I've been listening to a lot of um, Ragged like Ragged Glory and a lot of Crazy Horse records. And I've been, yes. Ragged Glory during this time period is just fucking incredible. But uh, what do you think that the primal thing is that kind of separates artists from, let's say, entertainers or something like that? Like, <laughs> and you're because in your world it's really an important distinction i think or it's a distinction that artists like you seem to make implicitly or explicitly well i first of all i appreciate you like introducing me as a songwriter first because that's that's all i've ever wanted to be you know and it, it'll be funny because i'll have some uh, there'll be like the nashville uh end of year like critics poll or whatever and it'll be like oh number two female vocalist and I'm like well, I appreciate that y'all like my voice but what I'm really trying to get out here is the message and um you know there really there's a million people out there that that can sing great and can you know blow people away at karaoke and there's there's a lot of really you know, beautiful people out there that, you know, can look good singing a song. But I knew that I was going to have to work harder than that. And the 13 years that I was trying to, you know, cut my teeth in this town and, and break through, I knew that it was going to be all about the song that, that would get me there. And it's such a painful thing to wake up every day and you have to prove yourself as a writer over and over and over. And, um, you know, I knew it when I was, when I first got here, I like went out to open mic nights. I went out to these like writers rounds and I knew that my songs weren't good enough. Like I, I could hear other people's songs, you know, and I knew that, uh, Oh, go. Yeah. You, yeah, you know, that, uh, that I had to work at that, you know? Well, this is fascinating. I had this written down to ask you cause I read that story somewhere and um there's this famous story and then i'm going to get back to this question about what makes someone essentially an artist versus an entertainer but uh there's this famous story in the world of golf there was this famous texan guy named harvey Pennock who ended up being the greatest golf teacher ever and but he tells a story of going to he was like the best golfer in his town in the 30s 40s but he went to a state thing in texas and he was walking by the driving range and he just heard a sound and it was the sound. And he went, what the fuck? And I'm sure he didn't curse. And he's uh, yeah. a very God fearing person, but he, uh, and what it was, was the sound of Sam Sneed hitting the golf ball. And he said, the sound of Sam Sneed hitting the golf ball was so different from any sound that I could make that I knew I was never going to be one of the great golfers in the world. So I'd better become a good teacher. And but somehow you walked into those and I've been in those, I know what those rooms are like, you know, I've, uh, uh, in, in Nashville. What do you think made you not just go, well, I'm back, to, you know, Garth tells that story about coming to Nashville, meeting somebody and running away for a year. He left for a year. Like yeah. what, what was going on inside you 
that you, you, a few things. One, how did you get to the ego place where you could recognize they were better than you? Most, most people never get there and it stops them <laughs> from making progress. This is really important for artists listening, right? Because recognizing, okay, they're better. Like, what did that mean yeah. to you that they were better? And then what was the thought process that wasn't, well, fuck it, I'm not talented like them, that led you to say, well, I can find a way to get here. It's worth it. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a really competitive person and I do want to be the best at everything, uh, everything that I, that I put my mind to. And I, I just kind of studied the reaction of, you know, of people playing and like what made a song good, what made the audience engage, what made them laugh, what made them cry. And, and I, you know, I also had this uncle who had made it in town. He, his name's Bobby Fisher, and he wrote, uh, he's my great uncle, but he wrote songs for uh, Reba McIntyre, George Jones, Charlie Pride, Tandy Tucker. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I went to his home and he just basically told me, um, you know, with the, in a compliment sandwich in a way, that my songs weren't good enough and that I just needed to keep writing. And it really hurt to like hear that and it hurt to realize it, but it was like, all right, I'm just going to work at this and I'm going to just keep mm -hmm. writing songs, you know, over and over until, until I get it. And I think, you know, sometimes you're writing the same song like yeah. repeatedly. And I even yeah. find myself doing that now. I'm like, Oh, well, this is like a continuation of like something on my first album or even from 10 years ago, but, uh, it's, you know, songwriting is, is, it's a muscle. And if you don't practice it and use it and, and refine it, it's not going to, it's not going to flex. <laughs> How did you know you had the raw materials? Like what gave you the sense when you were sitting there and, you know, you're at a guitar pole or whatever, and, someone plays something, you know, or, you, you know, you hear Brandy Clark's pawn shop song or something and, and you go, okay, well, that's, I can't do that now, but maybe someday I could do that. Like, what is that li like? Like, how'd you know you had it in you? I think I just had a lot of emotion that I needed a place to channel it, you know, and, and I've always been creative. I've, I always loved making up stories and writing plays and you know honestly I thought I would be an actor or something um and then <laughs> it's funny how life like twists and turns and it, it just ends up completely different but I but I always knew that I that I just had emotion that I needed to channel in a in a healthy way and I think I think songwriting has has saved my life you know more than once i I'm really grateful that I, that I have that exercise because even now, like during, during this whole pandemic, you know, I found myself like really depressed again. And, uh, at times, you know, like drinking too much and, and falling back into a lot of my old ways. And it's like, thank God I've got songwriting. <laughs> I just, I've been recording two albums simultaneously right now. And it's like, it just feels so good to, to be able to focus somewhere. Did you go write a song called Falling Back? 
He's falling back. That's a pretty good time. You got to do it. Go do that. I, I, like don't even, that. I just, I'll take like 3%, yes. but uh, right. no. You, change, change a word, get a third. Yeah. No, you got it right. Falling <laughs> back, man. That's such a beautiful yeah. uh, idea. That's a good title. There we go. You know, you have a Johnny Cash kind of story about a night in jail and you were going through horrible, horrible stuff, the nightmare stuff. Um, but the way you tell the story as a storyteller is like, you know, sort of a big change. You knew you had to make a big change, right? Um, so even though you're kind of glibly joking about it now, depression and drinking too much, while they are the material of country songs, uh, are you taking care of yourself actually? And like trying to like make sure that, uh, you know, because hearing that, knowing your history, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't even care if this is on the podcast, like just, are you all right? Yeah, I'm doing better. I, um, I quit drinking 43 days ago. Right. And um, yeah, I just, I, I knew that, that I had to pull myself back together because, you know, there's been times, I mean, I, I quit after I went to jail, I quit drinking. And then it was like, well, I took a break and I feel so happy now. Everything was going so great in my life. I was like playing all these late night shows, like, yeah, sure. Give me a glass of champagne. And it was so, you know, it's like alcohol is one of those things. that's like so easy to control until suddenly it's not. And, um, so, yeah, I just, it, I think too, not having that like purpose of being like, well, I've got five shows and we're traveling all over the country. I really have to like, you know, I didn't drink that much when I was working all the time because I wanted to be my best on stage. And so I'd always drink like at the end of, of a tour, you know, it'd be like, all oh, right, that was a great tour. And I would like drink with the guys and everything was fine, but being home and being so isolated and being like, yeah, just uh, in that in that state of depression, I just really I had to kind of shake myself and and tell myself that I that I needed to uh, to sh <laughs> to shut off the uh, the flow of tequila for a while and maybe forever. I, I read um, this book by Holly Whitaker that is called "Quit Like a Woman," and then I read this other book by Alan Carr called the easy way and you know self-help books have never been my thing but they were incredibly powerful and um i'm just i kind of have a whole new outlook on life right now oh that's awesome and um nikki glazer the comedian talks about that alan carr book a lot and all his, his nice. books and uh, so i've heard that they're very useful yeah it's funny i I've never met Nikki Glaser, but people are always like, y'all look alike or people tag me and stuff. Well, that's a big meme of Nikki Glaser's. No, a big yeah. meme of hers is people are constantly telling her all these different people that she looks exactly like. Oh, yeah. She'll, she'll, she'll um, Instagram like 20 in a row of all these people who are like, they say- Oh, that's hilarious. She looks like, I'll, I'll tell her though. Um, uh, yeah. That, that you said that. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really, um, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, but what else are you do? Are you extra? Like, what else are you doing to deal with? The, oh yeah, the I mean, you exercising. I've been, like, I've been exercising. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't drink for three months, and I was just feeling really happy and like focusing on myself and my family. And 
And then, you know, it was like, okay, well, there's three months and we got six months. And I think I know. when I started to close in on a year, I just started to like mourn my career a little bit because, you know, being a woman, you feel like there is this, sometimes this shelf life to your, uh, how long you're going to be like pertinent, but I, that's, that's why I, I'm always trying to reinvent myself and stay sharp and, you know, and, and take good care of myself because I am, I want to get back out there and um, I want to, you know, keep putting out records and keep touring. It's like, I spent 13 years trying to make it. And then when I got there, it's like, Oh, there's the apocalypse. I knew this was going to happen. Right. Right. You put the record out that Sturgill produces that everybody's focused on. I mean, you yeah. have, a, you have, um, I have so many thoughts that are coming into my head about everything you're saying, because of course the external validation thing actually is merely a distraction from those things, right? Like, Exactly. Of course, uh, when things are all happening, there's a way you can kind of table having to deal with the, the real reasons that we feel what we feel. And then that stuff's all stripped away now. And you're just left like who we we're left who we are. Yeah. You've got to learn to be content with yourself right now. And it's, a yeah, it's a constant job, you know, just kind of waking up and, and, and being thankful for the, the little things and being thankful for what you have. I think, you know, when Jeremy went through COVID, it was like, it was right. very easy. Your husband to be like, bandmate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My, my co-writer, my, my best yeah. friend, my everything. And yeah, when that happened, it was like, okay, I'm just going to be like, everything kind of shifted in, into what was, should be in focus and, you know, what is important in life. And, and a lot of the things that I was, you know, distracted with, with the newly found success and fame and, uh, you know, fancy clothes and, and whatever, it just all kind of didn't seem to matter anymore. I mean, do you think part of that is like, when, when you have foundational experiences that strip away the things you think you have somewhere in the back of your mind are you always worried about that apocalypse and then when it does happen I'm sure there were echoes for you right like maybe talk a little bit for people because you know so many people who are struggling through all the things that we're talking about here and who want to be artists like I just think there are parts of your backstory even if you've talked about them a lot that probably a lot of my audience doesn't necessarily know and 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 I wasn't really going to ask you a lot about it, but the parallels to me, this does in a weird way feel to me like the COVID of your husband and partner, the apocalypse right on the verge of success does feel like in a way it must have echoes to your family, like losing the farm when you were young. Yeah. I, you know, I think that unemployment has just been like, it's been a kick in the ass because I felt like, no matter what was, go you know, no matter what happens in the music industry, like people streaming your music instead of buying it and, you know, the corruption that is always going to be there in that industry. I always thought at least I have live shows and no one can take that away from me. And, you know, that was 
just my bread and butter. That was like finally how I was making a living and what afforded me to not have to work every dead end job that I hate. And, uh, but I always said that I said, if I ever do get my foot in the door, the world's going to end. And it was like, it was almost crazy, you know, where I'm like, I told you, like, I just feel like I have this like curse following me around, even though I've had a lot of great luck and I have a, a, a wonderful life and so many blessings. It just kind of felt like a, like a cosmic joke. Like, really? This is what you're going to lay on me now that I think I finally have it figured out. But I tell my, I tell my kids and I, I say it to them to remind myself that hard times build character and you know you you cannot truly appreciate standing on top of a mountain until you've spent time in the valley it's it's just part of life and uh yeah yes and i'm sure it'll show up in the songs do you feel like the fact that you um don't really co-write outside of you and and your husband uh it adds pressure at a time like this it's like it's all just in your fucking hands like whereas so many artists um are able to like you said the the you know as you know most of the time in nashville songs are written by three or four people now uh yeah. and that's just not the thing that you do did you ever do it did you ever do the music growth thing like go do a bunch of rights or never no no we tried at one point to uh to write under pen names and write like radio country songs. Awesome. And yeah, Jeremy was uh, Slim Pickens and mine was, let's see, wait. Wait, no, Slim Pickens is already a real dude. There's a real Slim Pickens. His name was Sam Pickens and my name was Sylvia Slim. So the co-write would have been Slim Pickens, but uh, it just did not work and we hated it. And, you know, I've, I just don't have any like interest in being on country radio. Like everybody's got this like huge fight going like, Oh, we need more women on there. But even the women's songs that I hear on there, I'm like, I wouldn't really want to write something like that. And, you know, it's just, it's a different kind of scene. So everything that I'm writing or that Jeremy is writing with me, it's all, you know, not everything is personal. Sometimes, you know, we write like a fictional story or, or whatever. Sure. We've been back into that more lately, but I just, I don't want something that seems like it's crafted by five different architects. Like how can you really put a piece of yourself in it when it's like, when you're writing solely to be on the radio, like no one should be writing to get awards. No one should be, you know, doing something for the success, it just cheapens the art, you know? I, I just, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I always say to young screenwriters, calculate less, less calculation. You can't actually, yes, there are a few people who can game it out, but most people can't. And, and if you try, you're going to end up anyway, doing a thing that most of the time isn't going to feel connected to why you wanted to become an artist. And, and I mean, you could be, you'd end up uh, writing for the new Nanny Nashville show. Have you seen that yet? No, right. No, I know. Right. But that's what. <laughs> like writing for a sitcom instead of writing like a, a film that is, that is meaningful or deep, you know. But yet though, it seems to me like you do, you know, you take no prisoners online or in, in, in the press and this whole thing that recently happened where, 
you called out certain aspects of country music. It does seem like you, you still consider that your community, because if you didn't, I don't think you would want to have a voice in it. So you called out Morgan Wallen's situation. You called out Luke Combs. And, uh, and I have a few questions about that. Um, well, one, do you still consider that in some way your community? No, I don't. I never did. I never was part of that. I have been an outsider. I consider myself the opposition. I consider myself another choice for people who don't want songs about beers and tailgates and objectifying women. I want to be someone that little girls can look up to and, or little boys, you know, and say, Hey, I want to write about uh, you know, something that, that happened in my life. I don't want to just write this, like, uh, this blueprint that's already been laid out for me. Um, but I mean, you know, I consider my, I love what country music once was. I love, um, I love Nashville. I love the, large majority of people that are here and that I've met and there's great bands and there, you know, and there's great songwriters that are friends of mine that, you know, can't get their foot in the door, but their songs are great, but they're too colorful or, you know, they're just, they're not radio friendly. And um, yeah, it's, it's strange because yeah, I have such a love-hate relationship with this town and with country music in general. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm not doing country music anymore, but there's still a part of me that's like, oh, but you guys are doing it wrong. <laughs> well, right, because the, there's something about the, wait, wait, um, like the tradition of outsiders coming in and changing or helping to shape it. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I talked to um, Amanda Shires Isbell about this at length is because we both are Billy Joe Shaver fanatics. And, you know, that story of him coming in and forcing Waylon to listen to his songs and getting Waylon to record that whole album. Like, you know, that guy's, no one would touch Billy Joe Shaver's songs. And then suddenly Waylon records 10 of them and it actually yeah. changes the entire town everything there's a whole huge swath of music now that the and i'm sure actually it's a lot of the beer songs you don't like but the legacy of the thing changing when waylon no, decided I, to record billy jo no not i'm sure you like those songs i'm saying but but, but you know what i mean yeah. there's a lineage that came from that that and it breaks off as it does and some of that becomes the, the right. sort of outer accoutrements of outlaw country without any of of what those mostly guys were actually like singing about, thinking about feeling. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen this like happen kind of repeatedly in the history of country music where it's like, it's really glossy, it's very cosmopolitan and, uh, you know, staying in one lane and then one person will come and just totally turn it on its head. And then you get like the major labels like seeing that that's successful. And then they try to, you know, put their authenticity stamp of approval on whatever Joe Schmo of the month. And, and it just, it kind of, then everything gets really muddled where it's hard to tell like 
who's speaking the truth and who's just um, repeating, you know, or, or trying to, uh, trying to be hip, you know? Yeah. Well, who's using like craft to, t- to sort of parrot the artistic impulse right. in, a, in a way, right. I, I guess, right? Um, yeah. Like where it's legit, like, you know, the, the dissonance for me when I hear um, Cover Me Up as sang, sung by Morgan Wallen is so weird to me. Because like Jason, for so long, those guys all, not Morgan, I don't know him, you know, they all shat on him. And suddenly Morgan's singing his song on this huge record. And it's, I'm sure to him, or I imagine it's not co-op, considered co-opting, but it sure feels like it's co-opting this real thing that Jason Isbell did, you know? Yeah, I, I haven't heard Morgan's version or his, or his album, but uh, I mean, a good song is a good song. And it's like, yeah, it'd be fine if like more of those dudes wanted to sing good songs <laughs> or push right. themselves. And know? I should say Jason gave all the money, Jason gave all the money back. I should say he, he actually went. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. He, that was he cool. donated all the money. I just in case anyone's listening. But, uh, so they know. Yeah. It's a, uh, it is just interesting, you know, just to see people kind of like build an artist and it's like all about the image. It's like, Oh, well this guy's real. Cause he has a mullet or something, but I don't know. I just think I just think he's boring, man. I like watched his SNL performance. I was like, this ain't good. Uh, but whatever, you know. I like everybody should be able to do what they're doing, and uh, well, you know, yeah. he, until you really come out as a big asshole and you know use language like he did, and then you see people completely like flock to him. And then his album is like way up there in the charts. It's like, that shows you exactly how far country music has to go. Yes. Yeah. It's no, uh, for sure. The fact that that happened as sort of predictable as it is, was still totally jarring to me and totally fucked up. And, uh, well, and yeah, yeah, I mean, actually like I understand. And the truth is I'm not, a, I don't understand Morgan Wallen's success at all. I completely understand Luke Combs' success. That guy and Ray Fulcher write great songs, like great pop. I understand exactly what it is that they do. I know exactly why that's successful. The other thing I agree with you, it's boring to me too. I don't. I'm like, I haven't really listened to to much of Luke and I, you know, I'm sure he's like a nice guy. I, I think, you know, the Confederate flags like being flown just six years ago, it kind of shows you how somebody like Morgan Wallen could be in there because it's, you know, writing good songs or not. I think, I think, I, I just think that, you know, it's, it's a little muddled here and what people are choosing to, to put massive amounts of money into. Um, it's yeah. Anyway. Well, it's true. I, I mean, I am very interested in redemption and in trying to figure out Right. Yeah. When people are serious about redemption. And so I think we can agree that Morgan Wallen has not shown any instinct toward that. Luke Combs, to me, uh, I want to believe his apology was real. It, it, it was it was great to, to say to denounce the flag. And I think, you know, 
that was kind of what I was looking for. It's like, okay, you want to write a song about unity? You want to write a song that's meaningful? Well, how are you how are you going to say that when this is your recent past? Yeah, I was fat. I loved what you I loved what you said, and I did think that his statement. Um, was a good one, but but look, we both are Tom Petty fanatics, you know. And as you know, uh, yeah, he used to. He, rebel, I mean, you know, when he was on that tour, like now, granted, I was born a rebel down a down in Dixie on Sunday morning. He does say one foot in the grave and one foot on the pedal, which for me was my way to grab onto this idea that he was leaving that behind. That that's the mm-hmm. that's who he was, but he was trying to move somewhere else. Yeah. But, and, and then I loved what he wrote, uh, that whole thing that he wrote about the Confederate flag. And, you know, I think that the 70s, it was a little bit of a different time. You know, I think as the decades have rolled on, that just like to be like in, in 2013 or something, it's very it was very different to, to fly that rebel flag at that point. Of course. Yeah. No, but of course it was never okay, but it's very clear. It was never okay to fly the, that flag. And right. I loved Leonard Skinner. Exactly. Like I have every Leonard Skinner album and all that stuff. But I, as, as a boy, you know, as a little boy, I, I loved Leonard Skinner. But- and I think you know, a lot of people just didn't realize how, how that flag made other people feel, you know, like when you were young and you, and you saw it and, it, it didn't seem well yeah I was a Jewish atheist and they would have hated me right all those people right. would burn a cross on my I mean they would gladly burn a cross on my lawn but yeah. I somehow yeah it meant nothing to me at 12 years you know Skinner died I was 12 yeah. it meant nothing to me other than I mean um that flag I just thought Leonard Skinner were cool you know what I mean I didn't know right. uh right. Freebird and was a, a great riff, song. right yeah. yeah I mean you yeah. know all that stuff so uh it's true but yeah you know uh, Carl Perkins and Elvis probably weren't the most socially liberal people. Uh, and you record your first record at Sun Studios. I'm in the middle of the amazing Peter Garlick book about Sam Phillips, and it's the best yes. book. I recommend it to everybody. The book's in- insanely great. And uh, and you chose to go to Sun Studios. I visited it, and it does. It's an amazing feeling to go into that room, even though you expect it to be just pure kitsch and ridiculous. You go there, and you're like. Holy shit! Carl Perkins was like there, like Johnny Cash was I mean, there. Yeah, the way that it's built is just the acoustics are incredible. I mean, we recorded everything in that room like, live together. You know, it was it was cool. It was nice to not have headphones on and just to be able to feel everybody in the room playing. But I mean, yeah, you were saying going back to you know Elvis and 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 everybody's like politics and. Uh, you know, not all musicians or actors are, are going to be like some like paradigm of virtue that everybody's got like great yes. morals. And obviously with power and money comes corruption. And it's, you know, I'm not saying we should cancel everybody. I definitely, I don't think that, but I think that both, you know, Wallen and Combs, like, Hey, you know what a really nice show of, uh, charity would be would be to donate some money to the new african-american uh musical history museum that was just built in nashville or you know really say i denounce white supremacy you know but there i think that there is a lot of those good old boys that are just very concerned 
with the money. And that's why it's been such a, you know, a divided time because obviously there's how many people voting for Trump, but how many people, you know, are there there that are going to buy your album if you are writing both sides of the line? Yes. And yet some people in this era, the thing you said about performing live is that if you make a strong stance, even though it may flake off the people who are sort of your fans, it, it might uh, really entrench your fans in a committed relationship with you where they'll support you no matter what period of art you're going through because they feel aligned with you. And that is like what stirred, I mean, I also find it disturbing. I was writing songs with a huge, a huge country writer and he referenced those guys as almost looking down on that it was, and I couldn't believe it, like easier to do what they do than what he does. What he's doing is writing huge country hits. And, and he was sort of saying, well, they can just do whatever the hell they want. And that, that uh, and I was like, well, but they earned that, like the much harder route to earn that, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Everybody can do whatever they want. I mean, like, you know, it's like, man, no, you could do it if you wanted. You just, people get so brainwashed into like, I mean, my friend Adia Victoria said the other day, she's like, why is everyone trying to make everyone comfortable? Like, be in an easy chair, you know? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous that people even think that they have to like stay in one lane or do, do something. I mean, every artist that I ever looked up to was the opposite of that, you know? I, I, I like people who go against the grain and, and make their own, make their own path. I think it's, it's much more exciting than, than following the template. Yes. Well, like the female artist, actually, you know, you led me with the, the Dolly thing that people always say about you, but I've been thinking a lot listening to your three albums. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Tuesday night music club, uh, Cheryl Crow's first record uh, because Cheryl back in those first couple of albums for me was a woman. And it's interesting. We talk about the career thing. Like part of me doesn't actually understand other than writing it off to the way the industry thinks about gender, why she is not actually put up with those guys. Like to me, she is like the female Tom Petty and uh, as close as anyone's come for like a long period of time of doing that. And, and, uh, I don't know. I just wondered, did that album mean anything to you? Or are you too young? Did it not, does it not really exist for you? I mean, I remember, I remember like her songs coming on the radio and liking them and, and liking that, that there was a woman that was playing guitar and, you know, had hooky songs. I think, I think Cheryl, one of the, one of the deepest songs she ever wrote. And it's, it's crazy that she didn't push it back then. was that song that she did with Johnny Cash. Yeah, sure. Latest record, you know, and that's the kind of thing that I think, really would have set her apart, but I'm sure she had people that were like, okay, well now you got to keep, keep in this lane and do like soak up the sun or, you know, yeah. I think, um, but I think there is just, there is a lot of ageism that happens in, you know, in rock and roll. And um, yeah, I think, you know, she definitely deserves more due uh, than, than she's got. And 
I yeah. sang strong enough with her at a Willie Nelson show. And That's it was awesome. like, it was so That's fun. so was cool. Hershey, Pennsylvania. It was the biggest crowd I'd ever been in front of. And I played my own set too, but she asked me to sing strong enough with her. And I was like, this is this is a moment I'm going to remember. You know? Oh, that's so bad. That's really badass to me. I got chills thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. She's, she's great. And, uh, she, she talked, she talked a lot about, um, misogyny and, and ageism and sexism with me. I went to record on her last record that she had, and she was talking about, uh, I won't say, I won't say names, but, um, a very, very famous woman who, led a rock and roll band and she said Cheryl you can't have kids you can't get married you'll never be able to write a song again and you know people will not respect you and it's like it's crazy that you know women feel like they have to do certain things or like you know even like plastic surgery and you know just the way that women are expected to to dress it's like I, I just I feel like I have so much to live up to and so much that I need to pass down to my daughter. And then there's the other side of the coin. That's like, look like this fitness box, you know, be pretty. Don't talk unless spoken to, or don't speak unless spoken to. But I'm like, I look at somebody like Patty Smith or like Joni Mitchell yes. and I'm like, or, or Carol King. And I'm like, that's more of the path that I want to go down than like feeling like I have to um, appease anybody by yeah, what I say or, or what I write or, or how I look or how I dress. I'm so glad you just brought up Patti Smith because uh, I, I always feel like I don't bring her up enough. And, and like, if anyone listens to this podcast and has not read Patti's books, like, Yes, listen to the records, go listen to horses, but go get Patty Smith's books to understand. Oh, about, without a doubt. To understand yeah. what you're willing to go through to be an artist and what it means yeah. and why to be an artist. And just go read Just Kids and the and the second book too. They're really yeah. worth it. Like so good. Just- I actually uh start when I was pregnant, I had just gotten done reading Just Kids for, you know, the second time. And I was like, I want to write a book like this because it all takes place like in her youth. And I thought I want to write everything down before I forget the details. And so I started writing a book when I was pregnant and I just tweeted about it and I got a book deal with uh, university of Texas press. And so that's what I'm doing right now is editing my second draft. It's uh, 500 pages. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> really? But it was I- definitely inspired by, by Patty Smith's book, just kids. Does it end with you getting out of jail? like right around the time that I'm playing like SNL and stuff. So yeah, it goes through when I first get, well, it goes through my childhood and then, you know, briefly kind of childhood stuff and, and then uh, dropping out of college, moving to Nashville and the, basically the 13 years that I struggled. Um, it's it's going to be damning though. I don't want a lot of my family to read it because <laughs> No, you have to be willing to tell the stories though. Yeah. What, what, so a lifetime of like um, stealing yourself to move forward despite rejection. What happens? Uh, how do you open yourself up enough when the Grammy nomination happens or SNL happens? How do you process 
love, when you're so used to knocking away hate, how do you process and synthesize love? That's a great question. <laughs> no one ever asks about that. Um, I think, you know, it's so freeing to, to feel happy. I, I feel like for so long I was putting up a lot of walls and, and learning to not trust people. Like my mom always told me, you know, like, don't trust everybody. This, and, and finally life makes you like jaded enough that you're like, okay, perfect. I've got this. Uh, humanity is, <laughs> is trash and more bad things happen than good. But, but kind of once things started to, to go right for me, it was like the most gratifying feeling because that entire time I didn't sell out. I didn't do things the way that other people wanted me to. And, you know, partially just because I'm really, really stubborn and, and partially because, you know, that's what my heart told me to do. But after, uh, yeah, after I was able to just start doing what I loved for a living, my whole life just felt like it, everything was in place and, and being able to like meet so many of my heroes and like record with Willie Nelson and, um, you know, like meet, meet Neil and, you know, be able to like play shows with these people. It was, it was just like a weight had been lifted. And especially after everybody tells you like, well, you made the wrong decision. You should have, you know, you should have went to college and got that degree and, you should have your 401k all set up in your retirement plan. And it was, I still haven't been back to a high school reunion, but I kind of can't wait to do it sometime. <laughs> yeah. You got to do it. I mean, you're the most, there's no doubt you're the most successful person in your graduating uh, class. So you, I think you have an obligation. I, mean, I had, a, I had a, uh, you know, it was like career day, our senior year and the guidance counselor was going around and looking at everybody's papers and what they had written down. And I was like, well, I want to, I want to do something with theater and with art. And she was like, you, you can't really do this. And um, yeah, I, I can't wait to, to hopefully see her someday and just tell her where to stick it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, so do you still, I, that's, I, mean, I always wonder about this. So you still use that stuff as fuel. Oh yeah. I think, you know, I was, I was the underdog for so long that I, I will always like have that kind of chip on my shoulder and, um, and just, you know, being able to relate to other people who are struggling and who completely have the talent and, and should be farther than they are in their career. It's like, you know, part of me is like, well, obviously I worked for it and obviously I write good songs and I, and I'm talented and I can sing and I, I'm not saying that I don't deserve it, but there's like, there's a, a level of luck that comes into like breaking into this and just being at the right place at the right time and meeting the right people that can help you. Um, it's, but it's yeah, also it's your willingness. You're also like David Mamet always said, the thing that separates people who have success in show business, people who don't, is just the people who did refused to go home. 
Exactly. It's like, I will not take no for an answer. You just, what it, the, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said for s- sticking to your guns and being able to, yeah, to just keep doing it. So when you were, we'll get to the end here, but um, during that period after you went to those songwriting circles or whatever, heard the songs that were better than yours, went to your great uncle and he told you what to do and you went and wrote every day. Was there any sort of a time in there where it connected for you in a different way and you realized like, okay, these, these feelings inside me, I'm finally getting them out in a way that they're as well-crafted uh, as, um, they're, they are, they're crafted sort of with the same level of rigor uh, as, as my feelings are potent. Like, was there a moment where you realized, oh, I have five songs now that I think they're different. These are the, I've learned how to do this. Yeah. Um, I do. I think, you know, it was after my rock and roll band had diffused and uh, it was called Buffalo Clover. And, you know, we did it for like six years. Um, I had lost my son to a, a surgery that he had at Vanderbilt when he was an infant. Um, Right. You no, had I twins had, and one of I them. I had twins and, and I lost one of them when he was So sorry, still and, just so, so sorry. Yeah. And it was like, until I had like really lived through, through some things, you know, I, I think that, um, and for a long time, it was, it was hard to like channel what I felt about it and even be able to talk about it and, or write about it in a song, God forbid. Um, but I think once I wrote Hands of Time, that was when I knew that I had a great, a great album. And, and then I had like, yeah, that I had refined my craft. Um, it was, you know, one of those, I like brought Jeremy downstairs. I was like, listen to the song, uh. listen to this. And and yeah, that was the moment I knew. And when I was shopping my album to everybody, I was like, this is the best country album that's going to come out this year. This is, you have to listen to it. And I was so confident at that point. And I still went a year after recording that being told no by almost every label in town, labels in Chicago, labels in Georgia, you know, labels in Europe and the UK and nobody wanted to listen to it. Nobody wanted to, to bite on it. And that was a really tough year of like, I was referred to that as like my year in purgatory because it just didn't make any sense why nobody wanted to put it out, but everything happens when it's supposed to happen. No, that's, I know that's an amazing, listen, that is just such a powerful fucking story for people to hear because one, right. You had the songs and nobody gave you the money to make the record. Famously, you had to um, pawn your engagement ring or wedding ring and um, gonna sell the yeah. car and all that shit. Right. <laughs> but so no one gave you the, no one said, okay, we heard your demo and we want you on our label. And then you actually made the record 
the record that became a huge hit uh, and established, broke you as an artist who'd made it. And all of the experts, all of the gatekeepers rejected you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure some of those same people, when your deal with Jack ended, wanted to sign you. Oh yeah, we, we went in and did some, uh, some more major label meetings after that. But yeah, I, I think because it was different and it was, it was unique, it was original and that's what scared people because they, you know, people that work at record labels, they want something that's already proven to be successful. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a difficult time to. Yeah. This shit's amazing. I'm watching this play out right now. I'm uh, a friend of mine who's this um, singer songwriter in Nashville, a woman named Emma White. She, she's been working and working and working rejection, rejection, rejection. She just like put a song on TikTok that she wrote with, our, our friend Caitlin Malone and like called thirties, a really, really good song about being in your thirties. Mm-hmm. And like it, it just took off on the thing and Spotify put it on every playlist. This just happened last week, but, and you can feel that, that the labels still aren't coming like, you know, and I'm watching this like in disbelief at the level of proof they want. And like, whoever jumps at Emma is going to have somebody who's going to have a big career. I'm certain of it. And I'm watching this now and it's, um, I see it playing out over and over again. Like you, the, the extent to which a female artist in particular um, can do something like that. And it doesn't yet move the needle completely is, uh, you know, amazing to me. So I can't, I can't fathom what that year felt like for you, but you must've felt, in, in rage, did you have some people though in your life other than just you and Jeremy who'd like, were like, hey, this is fucking great and it's gonna work out? Yeah, I had a, uh, a friend named Jenny who had some connections at Pretty Big Label and she was sending stuff out for me. Um, my lawyer, Kent Marcus, who's absolutely wonderful. Um, Brendan Benson gave me his contact. Oh, that's cool. And he was like, yeah, you need a lawyer. And this, and he was like reaching out to like all these managers and all these booking agents. He's like, he really believed in me from the start. And um, it's good to have him in my corner because he watches out for all the stuff, all the contracts that I can't read. Yeah, <laughs> and of whatnot. course. But uh, yeah, and, I'm, and my mom, she's always believed in me. And, um, you know, she's always kind of been there, but I think, you know, what was most important was just that I believed in myself. Like I, when I was in college, I had spent two years at Northern Illinois University and I was studying theater and dance and minoring in Spanish. And um, I I owe a lot of why I'm here today to a psychedelic mushroom trip that I took that completely, I I saw everything and, uh, you know, Two weeks later, I made the decision I was going to drop out of school and move to Nashville and be a songwriter. And it, you know, it sounds it sounds crazy, but it was like I had all these people in my life like telling me what was reasonable, what was acceptable, what was you know, what was safe for me to do. And I, you know, moved here with honestly about fifty bucks. The first week I was here, I wrecked my car. Uh, everything seemed to be working against me for so long, but I'm so glad now that 
that I just followed, followed my own path and um, would suggest it to anybody who has, has the guts to, to try and to be told no exactly 5,287 times. <laughs> That's the best. I can't wait to read the book and uh, hear about if you, I'm not going to ask now, but like, if you knew anybody in Nashville and what that first couple of weeks was like, and um, your first time going to like any kind of a song poll and stuff like that. Uh, Margo, thank you so much. Margo Price, go listen to her records, see her live when you can. Are you doing any live streams or you don't do live streams? Um, I've, I did the one at Brooklyn Bowl and we, at some point I want to put out more of the Ryman performances because I put out the live album last year, uh, Perfectly Imperfect at the Ryman. It features Sturgill Simpson, Emmylou Harris, Jack White. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be releasing uh, more music here soon. And, and the book will be here spring of 2022. That is fantastic. Uh, well, you'll come back when the come back on the podcast when the book is coming out and we can do the stories that we didn't get to today. I would love uh, to. You can find Margo's a great Twitter follow. We've been following each other on Twitter for a while <laughs> and uh, she's a great Twitter follow. So follow her there. And uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. And uh, never give up because uh, if you give up, you're, you, you, you don't get to be on Saturday Night Live. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>